Welcome to the Breaking into Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. Over the last few years, growth marketing or growth hacking has become a buzzword in the marketing scene. Andrew Chan first introduced the term growth hacking in his blog post, Growth Hacker is a New VP of Marketing, in which he defined the term and used Airbnb's integration with Craigslist as an example. On today's episode, we chat with Max Rankeret about how he growth hacked his photo sharing startup to 80,000 daily active users in South America and how he's applying those lessons in his current role as a growth marketing manager at Samsara. This episode is a real treat and is filled with gems that will help you understand the mindset of a growth hacker. Hope you enjoy. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10x. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arthur and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking the Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yes. Yeah, so it's 5 o'clock on a Sunday. And uh, we're sitting in Hack Reactor's Alumni Lounge on very cushy couches. It's sunny outside. Uh, and we have a very special guest who's going to talk to us about growth. Arthur, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, sure. So today we have Max Rankrad, who is a growth marketing manager at Samsara. And Max has a very interesting story of growing up in Chile, starting his own company, and eventually attending an immersive program called Tradecraft, where he learned how to do growth. So Max, before we begin, tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you went to school, and what you were passionate about before you made this big jump in tech. Sure. So um, I was born in New York City, but moved to Chile when I was two years old, and I lived my whole life there. Chile is a small, narrow country in the very south part of the world. It's a great, great country. You can be skiing and surfing in the same day. So it's amazing. I went to school there to study industrial engineering and then decided to come to San Francisco and, and be part of Tradecraft. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about, to take a step back, you told us in the pre-interview a very interesting story about Chile and how it got its kind of, how it got its like democratic principles. Can you tell us that story again? Sure. So in the 70s, we had the first elected communist president in the world. And he was, uh, they basically, my dad was like 15 years old there and he had to do a line to get a kilo of flour and one liter of milk, and that would be what you got for your whole family for the day. And those lines took forever. You had to get toilet paper, and everything was, was like that. And so then there was like basically like a civil war, and, and the military took over the country, which was a mess. A lot of people died. It was, it was really bad times. And, and this we had a dictatorship for 15 years, and this dictator did one thing. He was very smart about one thing. Instead of him running the country, he got the best students from Chile and he sent them to study economics in uh, Chicago booth because like Milton Friedman was a teacher there and he basically looked at the world and said, okay, what's the country that's been prosperous in the past years? What model do we want to follow? So he sends his kids there, they study economics, they come back to Chile and they make all the major reforms and they create a constitution that's super similar to the one that the U.S. has. So the effect of that was that in 30 years, Chile went from 50% poverty to uh, 6 or 7%. So it's like one in two people were, couldn't, didn't have any food to eat. They would die every winter because they didn't have any heatings in their houses. 
And in 30 years, there's now a country that people have houses, they have cars, they have good education. And it's really, it's amazing. And I, I was born in the in 1990, where um, democracy was, came back, like they came back with democracy. And so I, I was born in a country that had no communism, no dictatorship, and a solid democracy. So I'm, I'm kind of the son of economic freedom in a way, and freedom of speech and everything. So That's awesome. And how is the startup scene in Chile? So it's, it's pretty interesting. A couple of years ago, maybe like four or five, the government started running this program called Startup Chile, which basically in, they give 40K equity-free for entrepreneurs that want to go and start their business down in Chile. So if you go, you can get, uh, with those 40Ks, you can get developers. They're way cheaper than what they are here in San Francisco. And you can build your business there. And if you want to stay and you want to do your, your company and actually like, stay there, they'll give you 120K to scale that, which for you know, all entrepreneurs, it's free money. And at the same time, Chile, we're getting all the talent. So the US is kicking away the immigrants and we're saying, hey guys, come to my country, please. And when they're in Chile and they're doing this, they have to give back to the community. So they, you know, they organize meetups, they go to um, universities, to colleges, to high schools, and they talk with kids and they, you basically talk about your experiences, what mm-hmm. you've done. You talk about growth, product design, and everything. And so that's really been super helpful for the whole ecosystem to start talking about, you know, you could be a founder of your own company. You can change the world. You have the power to do it. And before, five years ago, it was like, oh, you could be a good, you know, general manager mm-hmm. for this company if you stay 30 years in the same company. And like every, all the mindset of, the, of Chile was... Okay, you have to have the best grades in school to get the job as an investment banker or whatever, and then you know get your way up into whatever twelve, sixteen hour job, and and it, it was it was crazy. People weren't happy, and and sadly, this whole startup thing accelerates so fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the education system in Chile, and like you were following this industrial engineering path, and like what was your first initial interest in growth? Sure. So I, I had a teacher that was, he was, he's, I love him. He's a smart guy. So this teacher sits us down in a class and says, if you want to be a general manager at the airline company, get out of my class now. Like this is class is not for you. So a lot of people went out of the class and the guys that were curious, we, we stayed and he started like showing us like, Hey, the world is more than just being a manager. You could do this. You could start your own company. This was like in around 2008 where the tech boom was starting, but not really. It was before the crisis in the United States. So it was like kind of a crazy moment to be talking about startups, especially after the bubble, like people had learned. But he was basically pushing us one thing, like the customer development, right? Like build a company, but build it based in the customers. Get feedback, get a you know, MVP and start from there. What was the name of that class? It was uh, Creativity and Innovation. And that professor ended up moving here, and he's now a professor at Berkeley. So, oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> really <laughs> That's cool. That's awesome. So it sounds like Chile is promoting innovation, and uh, you kind of caught the entrepreneur bug in college by taking this course. And then you told us in the pre-interview, you, w- you went on and did your own venture. What was that like, and what did you try to build? Sure. So after this class, I took every startup class I could. And we had all these professors from Stanford that would come to Chile and teach us about like, cool stuff. And I was sold into it. So I was thinking about stuff like looking at problems that I had every day. And 
So there's this actually one random day. Um, I'm drinking a beer with with my close friend, with my cousin, and we were wasted. And like, I take a photo of my cousin. This was back in 2011, and I wanted to share it to like a couple of friends. And I was thinking like, hey, what what would happen if these guys would share the photo with their friends and it go viral? Like, my cousin would be in a huge mess. So that's when we said, why don't we create an an app that I can send you a photo? You see it for three seconds, and then that's gone. Sounds like something some other app that's kind of popular. <laughs> So it was exactly at the same time as Snapchat. Snapchat was doing their thing at Stanford. We were in Chile and we started building our product. We joined an incubator in Chile that brought us to San Francisco, had exposure with mentors, with angel investors here, and everybody loved the product. What was the name of the incubator? It was uh, in Cuba, Jose. And so the, the company was called Blink. I forgot to mention that. So we came here and then we, we realized that it was going to take us like eight months to raise capital. And one day we get a phone call from Chile saying from an investor that said, hey, I want to invest in your company. So we go back to Chile. We raised 250K, which it's like raising 2 million here in the US, build an amazing team. And we were seven guys full time working and basically trying to figure out if there was product market fit for what we were building. So what happened is that we were all over the news, a huge PR launch, and we got like 50,000 users in the first day or something, like something insane. And then the retention was super low. It was like 2%. I was like, oh, we spend all that stuff in doing PR, old school stuff, and then retention is 2%. We need to figure out what's sticking. So we didn't really know about growth. It was something coming from Chile. It's not something that you, you, know, you hear in every conversation. The whole startup Chile thing was starting. So one day by mistake... A friend of mine creates a fake user and starts sending images to the first-time user. So if you would go in the app, you would log in, uh, sorry, sign up, and then you would get a photo from this stranger, basically. And people that opened that photo, they were way more retained, and retention went from like 3% to 20-something with just one feature. And it was like, wow, that took us like five minutes to develop. Like It's pretty amazing how like one tweak can have that effect in retention, how can we do more of that? So I kind of got into growth by, I wouldn't say by mistake, but it was a necessity we had. And we had a, this huge problem that we had to solve. So eventually we, we started doing all these small tests and most of the tests will fail. Like nine out of 10 tests were bad and actually took our metrics down. But there was one test every now and then that would push our metric up. Everybody was happy again. And then we would go do that process again and again. A cool story was that I was at a conference there and I was speaking, pitching my company in, in front of like people that had come from San Francisco there. And Jared Koff, the founder of Adro, was there. And Jared said, hey, Max, you know, I love your enthusiasm. Let's meet for a Pisco Sour. And I was like, okay, that's, that's awesome. What's a Pisco Sour for the people that don't know? <laughs> so Pisco Sour is an it's amazing drink made out of Pisco, which is, uh, comes out of white wine. And, you know, lemons and other stuff. You mix it, you drink two of those, and then you're done. Like, <laughs> it's going to be a great night. So uh, we, I know what I'm getting uh, at the next happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> we actually drink it in Chile with uh, ice. We drink Pisco ice and Coca-Cola. It's the best uh-huh. thing in the world. And everybody drinks it. The hangovers are insane. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we were there. We were drinking this Pisco sour and uh, Jared looks at the app and he was clicking stuff around and then he's like, you're probably losing like 30% of the users 
from in the sign of flow. And I'm like, wow, we're losing 32%. It's, you're so close. And then he goes like, you're asking for information without giving them the real value proposition. And he was like, why don't you add a button in the middle of the screen, the call to action that says, you know, click me or, you know, click here or whatever. And when users click it, you show a photo, shows for like two seconds and then it's gone. And then you click it again and it shows you another photo and then it's gone. And so we, we um, did this feature, we launched it. And from 30% that we were losing, we came down to 9%, which is insane when you're thinking about thousands of users, that's extra 20% only because of one product tweak. So uh, that's how I kind of got into growth as well. Like by doing these tests, seeing the results and learning, it was just amazing. You were doing this while you were in, you said in Chile, it's not a four-year program, it's a six-year program. So you had done three years and then you, you froze and then you started this company for how long? So uh, yeah, I, I froze, dropped out of college for almost a year and a half. And I was 100% into my company. And so we, from, we had the initial boost with the 50,000 users that they all you know, went away. Leaky bucket, 3% were retained. We were doing all these experiments and we started growing. And eventually we had 80,000 daily active users with the wow. app. Snapchat had like 100,000 back in those days. And we were super close. So we, we were targeting Latin America. In that moment, we knew that Snapchat existed. And they were focusing in the U.S. So we said, okay, let's be the first to market in all Latin America. We were in Chile, Argentina, Peru, Brazil, Colombia, some Mexico. Mexico was kind of divided. And then in India. So after that, to finish kind of the story with the startup, we Snapchat raised three rounds of investment kind of in six months. They hired an army of engineers. And at the end, it was a feature fight. Like they would come with features almost every two weeks. And our users started saying, hey, we have all of our friends inside Blink, but look, you know, Snapchat has videos, Snapchat has stories, and then it was a feature fight. And then the network effect that we had created slowly, slowly started diluting, and then Snapchat took over the market. But uh, for two years, it was definitely like an amazing race. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. So it sounds like you've learned some valuable lessons uh, by starting your own company. And then um, I know you ended up uh, doing tradecraft and doing growth. Can you take us through the journey of uh, kind of doing your startup and then how did you end up in San Francisco doing Tradecraft? Sure. So when I was, I was running the company, my big struggle was, okay, how do I go from 50,000 users, 80,000 daily active users to millions of users, right? So I was in that and then I get an email from Andrew Chen that I used to follow his blog. Who's Andrew Chen? Andrew Chen. He was uh, the, one of the first guys to talk about growth publicly. And he had a blog that he would, uh, had a newsletter and wrote a bunch of essays that were pretty cool for the kind of the time in which he, he published those articles. So I followed him, read everything he had written. And uh, I get this email saying, hey, you know, Growth Hackers Conference, come to San Francisco. How to go from 10,000 users to, you know, 100 million users. Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, I'm sold. So back, back then I was, I was, I had come back to college. I had exam week. I said, you know, whatever. So I took my first plane, came to San Francisco and went to that conference. And in one day I had, there were all the smartest growth guys in the world in that one room. The guys that had done, you know, Twitter, Quota, Dropbox, LinkedIn, Voxer, they were there talking about growth. And I had this vague concept of growth that I had kind of invented in Chile by like testing stuff out, mm -hmm. 
with some influence from like uh, Andrew Chen. But when I got there, it was like, wow, this is amazing. And I got really inspired specifically with like, I met Andy Jones there. He was a growth marketer at Facebook, Twitter, Quota, and Wealthfront now. And just his method and way of approaching growth was the one that made the more sense for me. And I got that model basically and took it back to Chile and started, you know, telling people about growth, telling about this is how they do it at Facebook. This is how they did it at Dropbox. And and that was amazing. So in that conference, I the guy that organized the conference was Misha, which is the founder of Tradecraft. So um, for a long time, I was talked to Misha and said, hey, Misha, please send me any articles, any videos, any material, books, whatever that you come across that are related with growth. I really want to learn. And so Misha one day sends me an email and says, hey, Max, I think you would be a good fit for Tradecraft. It's this program we're running. And I said, I really want to go, but I have to finish college. So I went back to college, finished, and then I took three months off, uh, went surfing to Indonesia. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and then came to San Francisco and did the program for three months. Nice. And you also came with your brother, right? Your younger brother joined you on this journey? I did. He's a crazy smart kid. I had gotten my ticket to San Francisco and I was already, uh, you know, uh, accepted at Tradecraft. And my brother said, if you're going, why, why wouldn't I go? I, <laughs> I can do it as well. So he applied and he got in and he's only 20 years old. But uh, he's definitely going to become like a really good growth marketer. He learned about this really early on into his career, right? 20 years old in Chile, still in college. He was going for like whatever engineering. Mm-hmm. And then he, he now uh, switched to computer science, which is the one that made more sense with what he wants to do. And now he's creating like generating a lot of impact in like startups in Chile by applying all the growth stuff that he learned here in Chile. And at the same time, he's running classes and teaching people, you know, stuff about growth and yeah, when he's 25, he's going to be uh, he's gonna kill a rock star. Yeah. And, you know, I know you and your brother got accepted into Tradecraft. You had these months before you went into Tradecraft when you were surfing. But you also did something else during that time that you realized that you wanted to learn that was missing while you were at Blink. What was that? Sure. So between Blink and coming to Tradecraft, I wanted to learn about kind of like the advert, mobile advertising world. So, um, and I wanted to learn how to code as well. So um, when I had Blink, we would lose our, our main engineer and then we'll have the product. We didn't have any features for new features for like, you know, a month and a half. And Snapchat on the other side of the world was having like taken out features every week. So basically I was like, I would love to be able to code myself. And I just Googled like, hey, how to learn how to code iOS apps. And the first link I get, it's a Stanford professor, you know, HD videos, with like the PowerPoints and everything, the material. And I started watching these classes that were just amazing. And like there were people at Stanford paying a lot of money to get the same classes. And I was in Chile in the you know, most southern part of the world seeing those same classes and learning for free. And so in, in three weeks, I kind of learned how to code iOS apps. And I decided to build a project to kind of learn by doing. So um, I built this, this app called Wingo which basically users would go in, they, would, they could click a button and watch an advertising video that lasted for like 30 seconds, and they would get these virtual coins, which then they could redeem for prices. So um, I built this app. They had like a funny parrot as a character, and um, 
I built like the viral kind of loop into the app from scratch because I already had like the growth mindset into mm-hmm. it. And I tested it out with like 20 to 25 kids in high school. And I did a big group, a WhatsApp group with all the kids so that they could share everything, all their experiences. And I did that. And, and I realized that there was a huge arbitrage between the United States advertising market and the Chilean one. In the US, they were paying me like 5 to $10 per 1,000 impressions of the videos, the advertising videos I showed. In Chile, I was getting 100 bucks for that. So it was insane. And I launched it with these kids and the kids were watching 250 videos per day. That's like 25 bucks per day per kid. You know, 20 kids, that's only 20 kids. It's not even one class. And at the end, I was like, I just felt bad about doing that because these were kids that should be studying, should be doing, you know, sports or reading or I don't know, doing whatever. But they were spending almost two hours per day on their phone watching advertising videos. So um, I decided to close that company. I gave everything back to the kids, gave them the prices, gave them the money and said, kids, you know, go do other stuff. But uh, it was definitely like a huge learning uh, experience in a lot of different things from like the coding to like dealing with like advertisers, learning about the advertising market and taking a product to market. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that, um, so you and your brother, you both get accepted at Tradecraft. For our listeners, uh, can you just give an overview of what Tradecraft is and the, what value does it provide to students? So we, we got accepted at Tradecraft. We moved to San Francisco and Tradecraft kind of, they you have eight weeks of curriculum in which they each week you go through a specific subject. So one week was, for example, conversion rate optimization. And you do one week where you get to read a lot about it and you get to do practical work with companies. So we did a lot of free consulting for companies that you know, wanted to do some A-B testing and we would do that for them. And what's amazing is that the classes were really small, like five to seven people per class. And we had an instructor for the five of us, for the six of us. So the instructor would basically give us the homework. We would do our homework during the weekend. And then we had four days with the instructor to really go into like more deeper things and learn like the really amazing stuff. And that experience was great. And at the same time, you get to meet people that are smart, are motivated, are getting in tech. And these are guys that are like all over San Francisco in different companies and Tradecraft creates a community of people that help each other. We have, for example, a Slack group where everybody, you know, shares articles that they think may add value to the community. And if you have a problem, let's say you want to do A-B testing and you've never done it before, you say, hey guys, I want to, you know, do some A-B testing. Can anybody help me? And you have a guy that worked at Optimizely for five years and he's the best guy at A-B testing that you can know of. And he sits with you for, you know, a couple hours and know teaches you everything about a b testing and you accelerate how fast you're learning by like helping each other and like that community is really amazing yeah and how long does the program last it's uh three months and they also help you out a lot with like finding a job after that not necessarily like you know taking you by the hand and like putting you in the company but like teaching you the process like how do you do it like how do you realize what companies you want to work for how do you prepare for interviews? How do you make the right connections so that the probability that you get an interview in a good company increases, right? That's the whole point. Yeah. 
In our pre-interview, you mentioned um, your criteria for selecting a company. And I just loved uh, how you came up with that process and what your standards were. Can you tell uh, our listeners how you approach the job search? Sure. So I, at the beginning, I was super into consumer products and that was my thing. And I interviewed a couple of companies. And when I started talking with uh, whoever was going to be my boss, many of the guys had a consulting background or an investment banking background, which is, I know they're smart people for sure, but they're, they haven't, they're not in tech. Like they know the basic stuff about growth and they can talk about it, but they're not technical. They don't understand what people are actually doing. So for me, it was like, I wanted to get someone that could get their hands on the weeds with me and like, because that'll eventually like fasten up, accelerate your learning curve a lot. So um, I basically, when, when I knew that the guy was from consulting, that would definitely almost immediately be out of my decision. I was looking for a company in which I was working with the smartest guys in the world. Mm-hmm. I moved from Chile to San Francisco. I wasn't going to get a shitty job at a, you know, whatever company. Yeah. I was going to work with the best guys. And, and that's been kind of my mantra. Yeah. So you didn't just want a job. You wanted the best job and surround yourself with the smartest people that you can learn from and uh, grow in that company, right? And, and it sounds like it's kind of consistent with everything that you kind of have been through. You've, you've gone to these conferences. You've introduced yourself to people. People have come up to you as you were going through this process for selecting the company with the smartest people in growth. Did you have any mentors that guided you in a certain direction? How did you meet those mentors if there are people that you didn't mention? And, and how did that affect your search? So uh, for me, the person that has influenced me most is Andy Jones. I met Andy at the Growth Hackers Conference a couple of years ago. I remember talking with him for like maybe two minutes. But for me, they were very important two minutes. Like He told me a couple of advices that were really good. And then three years after that, I'm at a bar here in San Francisco. Andy comes in the bar. We start talking. And he looks at me and says, hey, I know you. You're a guy from the Growth Hackers Conference. We met outside. You were doing Blink. And you had, you know, 80,000 users. What happened? And that's when you realize why these guys are the best in the world. It's insane. So from then, I've, I've read everything he's published. And like, I really like, like his method and the way he thinks about growth. And definitely like looking forward to kind of following what his career path. And hopefully one day, you know, I don't know if it worked for him, but I would serve the coffee at, at his office if that was what he needed. But just being around those kind of guys, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's so invaluable. It's, so it sounds like you were willing to to work with anybody that really had deep knowledge about growth. And based off of all your reading, you knew who those people were. And it didn't matter if it was paid or unpaid. You just wanted to learn um, and then you know follow that type of trajectory. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, so how did you end up at your current position? So um, I was super into consumer products. And I didn't really have a reason why not B2B, but uh, it's just how, uh, I don't know, it was just a mindset I had. So basically, I, I wanted to work with the smartest guys in the world, and I was looking at companies, and then one day Nick from TradeCraft tells me, hey, Max, you should definitely... And we've interviewed Nick on the podcast. He's their director of partnerships, right? Yeah. Yeah, shout He's out to Nick. Program yeah. director at TradeCraft. Cool. Very smart guy. And Nick tells me, Max, you should at least get a coffee or something with people at Samsara. It's this B2B company 
that's building sensors for the industrial market. And I was like, I don't understand what they do, but okay, sure, why not? If Nick's telling me, it's because it's it's relevant. So I I met with um with the guy that now it's my boss, and in the first five minutes of the conversation, I could tell that that he was a very smart guy. These guys had built Meraki before. It was a company that they sold to Cisco for one point two billion dollars. Work at Cisco, did their time at Cisco, a lot of micromanagement you can imagine. And then they came out and they had, um, so Sanjay, the CEO, had this vision before starting Meraki that he wanted to build sensors, but the technology wasn't out there yet. So um, basically he built Meraki, sold to Cisco, and now he came back to his original vision about building sensors. So um, when I was talking with Karen, the leadership team was amazing. Like I could tell that they had a lot of experience. Most of the team comes from either MIT or Stanford. They're very smart people. And after having like the first interviews, like I knew, like having a boss that if you have a coding problem, he could look at your computer and say, hey, let me help you out. Actually gets your computer and fixes it. It's just amazing. Yeah. So I actually have two questions for you. For our listeners, can you tell them, um, it's a little bit of a philosophical question, but can you explain what growth is in your own words? Sure. And the second question is, so I know kind of what growth is for consumer products. Can you also talk about in the context of B2B, what does growth look like for that? So for me, growth is a very unique interaction between design, engineering, and psychology. If you think about it, you change the color of a button and that increases the amount of people that click it, right? You change the wording or you use these psychological triggers, right? And then that increases the amount of people that are retained or that apply. And so it's this mix. There's doesn't come from only one part. It's a multidisciplinary thing in which it's obviously based on numbers, on like metrics. But the things you do to change those metrics is based in design and psychology. So um, for a consumer startup, uh, depending on what type of business you have, obviously, but in the case of Blink, it was about how do we build that network effect a strong, like how do we have a viral loop in which users will invite other people and then those guys at the same time will invite other people so that the company grows. And it comes down to like two metrics. It was like Earth 3 really, but like the K factor, right? So if I invite you, how many people in average will you invite? If that's over one, you have a company that's growing, right? And the other thing is like the cycle time. So if I invite you, how long does it take you to invite your friends, right? If it takes a year, then this, it's going to be very slowly the, the internal growth, the viral growth. And the third is, is retention for me. So these are like the three important things to measure. There's obviously like you could divide the funnel in like acquisition, activation, retention, and then revenue. The pirate framework is it's pretty interesting and I quite follow it. But for me, in a consumer product, if you don't have a business model based in the app from the first minute and you can't spend money on like paid channels, you need to think about that viral loop and how do you optimize that viral loop. For the B2B side, it's actually, it's very fun because even though it sounds boring, the budgets are insane, right? When you're in consumer, you sell socks, your margins are very like small. If you're in B2B and you're selling sensors for the industrial market, I think both sides are getting value out of that transaction. 
where in the consumer it's more based on like aspirations, right? So in the space where um, you're doing growth with other businesses, where do you draw the line between like someone who's doing partnerships and reaching out to businesses directly and then someone who's doing growth, which I would think of growth as acquiring users or customers on a mass scale. What does it look like uh, at your current role? Like, So in the B2B world, many people put marketers incentives in like the amount of leads they generate. The problem with leads is that most of them may not be qualified. So you're spending salespeople's time and you end up losing all your credibility. And they marketing loses its credibility as a department basically inside the company. So for me, it's more about how do I get the right people? How do I get the right leads? And then handle them to the sales team, and which basically accelerates the sales cycle. So if you, if you outbound call a lead, it'll take a long time to close it. If you're constantly saying, hey, how do you track your vehicles, right? How do you do this? And you're pushing them with like content marketing and with paid and different channels, right? The guy realizes that he has a problem and he calls you and says, hey, I want a demo. He raises his hand. So that guy eventually, when a sales guy calls him, he doesn't even have to pitch the company anymore. Like mm-hmm. he's already sold into it. So for B2B, it's like kind of growth or marketing sits more on the demand gen side. Mm-hmm. Even though you can tweak the product like, of course, demand gen is related with like building landing pages and optimization in that side. You don't really get into retention mm-hmm. because there are different roles that do that. Yeah. While on consumer, you need to kind of build the whole funnel all the way to retention and then whatever comes after that. Like, Yeah. Awesome. So what advice do you have for people who are trying to break into growth and they may have maybe some SEO background, maybe they've never done anything growth related before? But they're very interested in the field. They love psychology. They love experimenting with things. So, what uh, kind of what path would you recommend exploring for them? I think having a like a background in psychology or design or all that helps a lot for sure. I think coding is a unique skill set, a skill that it adds so much value because you can do much more. For example, if all the way from like coding like simple HTML and CSS to coding some more advanced stuff through Python or anything like that. So for example, if you want to test out a landing page and you don't know how to code, then you have to ask engineers, hey guys, can you please you know, tweak this small button and make it a little bigger? Or And those changes, it's... They take time. They take time, yeah. right? And as a marketer, you want to be testing as fast as possible. So it's really handy that you can just get the code, change the you know HTML yourself, push it to production, and be testing in real time whatever you want to test. At the same time, in the Python side, it's really useful to do like data analysis with Python. SQL is very limiting. Like, and, it, and you cannot like plot with SQL. There are stuff that works over SQL that helps you plot. But with Python, you, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. There's a really cool library called Pandas. I know you've heard of it, but uh, for... Is it an Airbnb? Is it an open source by Airbnb or something else? I don't know where the, is it a visualization the tool. Uh, no, no, okay. it's, it's just a library that makes it very easy to like do data analysis. Mm-hmm. And what's cool is that if you know how to code and you can then start scraping, and then scraping is an awesome skill to have, right? You can scrape emails from a site, cross them with Facebook, and then run a campaign on those emails on Facebook or other stuff. You can scrape a different bunch of sources, and just having that skill set adds a lot of value mm-hmm. to like when you're going to get hired, like 
if a guy knows how to code, that's it's not even one extra point. It's like 10 extra yeah. points, right? Like, And in your role now, what percentage of your time would you say you spend coding or doing coding-related tasks? I would say like uh, 30 or 40% for mm-hmm. sure. So like especially for like, say, SEO, right? You want to tweak the pages. You want to change the images. You want to do all of that. You're spending time in the actual code. Mm-hmm. At the same time with Python, like I spend a lot of time scraping sites, getting content information in which I can run some like simple email marketing campaigns with like the multi-touch things. Mm-hmm. So like email and then get those guys on some Facebook and then some display or... And then all of those touch points add up to the... That guy is now has your brand. He's, you know, subconscious... And whenever, even if he doesn't convert, if a guy outbound calls him, mm-hmm. he's heard about Samsara. He's read an article about Samsara. So he's he's way more familiar with like the company and he's way more, the probability that you actually close him is way higher. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about this in the pre-chat and it sounds like, you know, the growth role, even though a lot of people think it's a non-technical, only like marketing related role, even though marketing has some technical elements, you recommend learning at least the basic level of coding. You are also probably also interacting with salespeople, so understanding sales is probably important. But can you talk a little bit about what career trajectory within growth kind of looks like and the different philosophies that your mentors have kind of like guided you and your own perspective on that? So in, when you think about growth and career path, I think there are two options. You can be a specialist or you can be a generalist. So what's a specialist, right? Like a specialist is a guy that he understands and knows one specific channel and he's the best at what he does at that one specific thing. So for example, like it could be conversion rate optimization or paid acquisition. He's the guy of paid acquisition. He knows every trick out there and he's spends, you know, his 12 hours per day doing only that. So for when I was discussing with this with Andy, he was like, when I need to hire people, I need to hire a specialist. I need to hire the best guy to do paid acquisition at Wealthfront or something like that. The way I, I think about growth, it's it depends on your personality. I think that people that do that are specialists, they're fine in doing one thing over and over and over and over and over. For me, I'm just too anxious. I like moving a lot. So I like doing, I'm more of a generalist. I'm around, I'm doing everything at the same time. And the thing with being a generalist is that you come your entry level, the entry level job for a generalist, it's hard because you can join a small company that you're the first growth hire and then you're fine. But if you join a company that has 200 employees then you don't really have a, a job unless you're the VP or a director, right? So um, I, I think being a generalist is fun. We get to test everything and yeah. keep to, you can do all of that yourself. And it also builds up for one day if you do become like a director or a VP you have all the skill sets in all the different channels that you can then share and with the rest of the team. Yeah, yeah, and that's helpful. Uh, the other thing that we like to talk about too is like a lot of the roles in tech or in just in different industries tend to be defined and people know what to expect. In this type of role and various other roles, a lot of people don't understand a lot of things that you've already shed light on, but what range of compensation do you think people expect at the entry level on a growth level? And then how does that look like over time? So the great thing about growth is that if you can master growth, like you can eventually start your own company and do really amazing things. 
entry level, I think in San Francisco, anybody that makes under 70K cannot live in the city. It's very hard with the rents, with the food, with everything. And so I think growth pays enough that you can live in the city. It's not a huge salary, but um, I think in contrast with like engineers, which their entry level jobs are very well paid, engineers get kind of stuck more and it's for them. So they, they start getting what, like 125, I think. And they, they're kind of stuck in that 125 to 180 range where I think growth marketers start lower, but I think they can definitely increase way more. And I, I don't think there are a lot of growth marketers out there. So being one, a, a good growth marketer today is kind of like a scarce thing. And I would definitely push people to do that. It's a new thing. Not many people know about it. And if, if you can understand, like, if you have like a little technical background, which you can code, you understand how the internet works. You understand how to, I would never say hack, but how the how URL works, right? When you're using URLs to send parameters to do tracking or stuff. If you know, like, you have a lot of skill sets and you've done, you've created impact in a lot of companies, you're then like, recruiters are going to call you. And you're, you're one in, you know, millions, right? I think with, like with any job, like there's always one in 10,000 guys that's the best guy. But in growth, the thing is that people that know how to code, they usually are engineers. People that are good at business, usually in sales. Growth sits kind of, and like people are good at design, do design. Growth is like this thing in the middle, right? It's like people that know how to code, know a little about design, know about business, but they don't want to do neither of them. They want to be at growth. It's a weird skill set. And it also sounds like a very results oriented as well, because it's all metrics driven. Data is a huge component of growth and you get to like experiment and run tests, right? So if you could come up with good hypotheses, test them, show that, hey, we were able to increase user growth by 50% month over month to a startup that could mean extra million dollars or $2 million in revenue. So if you're the person bringing that in, then you're going to be compensated pretty well, I'm sure. It's crazy. I, we run the e-commerce with my brothers in Chile. And in the beginning, I didn't know anything about like, you know, CRO, conversion rate optimization. And then one day after reading an article, I go back to my site and I say, wow, where's, this is weird. It's hard to navigate through. And I did basic changes. And then in the, in kind of in the flow, I would ask for people's email before actually asking for the credit card and email and like name or something. So because I, I saw that there was a huge drop down when the credit card part, right? So what I would do is, is basically say, okay, I have the guy's email. I have his name. If he drops down, I can go find him some way around the web, right? I could do some retargeting specifically to those guys on Facebook with a photo of the product that they dropped. I could send them an email saying, hey, you, you know, dropped this card. And if you think about it, it's like maybe the guy was writing Muni. He saw your e-commerce he was going to you know, fill in the data, but he didn't have his credit card at that moment and he just forgot about it. With the emails, then you're reminding him like, hey, you know, you should remember to buy this product, you nice photo of the product. And then that increased like our revenue. It was 2x. Mm-hmm. And it's insane that we did all this effort to get to 1x. And then it was like one simple trick and now it's 2x. It's the double. It's And those like changes, it's really passionate about growth and like doing these things. It's like, wow, growth really works. And yeah. And it sounds like for someone who wants to be an entrepreneur, it's definitely a must skill to master because 
like you were saying, these little changes could completely change up the trajectory that your company sat it on. And I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of it. So it's pretty cool that we have, have you on, your, on our podcast to kind of share these tactics and tell our listeners why they should care and maybe even go pull up a growth article tonight and kind of start looking into it. On that note, actually, I, one last question I wanted to ask you was, so there's a lot of tools that growth marketers use. And I think our, some of our listeners may have read a little bit about growth, but what are the main tools that you use day to day to measure growth, to run tests, to analyze things and so on? So I think the B2B is kind of different to the B2C world. On B2C, it's like you need to have a very powerful analytics. Whatever you're using has to be very powerful and it's important to measure the right things. Sometimes we get, you measure everything and then you're overwhelmed with all this data that doesn't make any sense. You can, you know, come up with like real conclusions and things. So um, I've used almost everything from like, you know, Google Analytics, Mixpanel, Kissmetrics, Heap Analytics, the analytics part. For the testing, I've used Optimizely, but I'm not an A-B testing expert. Pretty sure that there are better platforms out there. Optimize is just like the plug and play one that's very easy to work with. Um, there are a lot of people that are starting to use the testing canvas that uh, Growth Hackers is offering, which is a very easy way to keep track of all the tests you're doing and, and running constantly and you know what's easy to build, what's not, and what's the impact and kind of decide what feature is the next one on the, in the pipeline. I think you need to be familiar with like all the advertising platforms. So Facebook, Twitter, Search, Instagram, YouTube, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, (laughs) Snapchat, Tumblr. And when you say familiar, do you mean like understand their marketing ad plans and stuff or? So more of like what you can actually do with that platform. So for example, when Facebook came up with the custom audience, right, you can upload a bunch of emails and then go target those guys on Facebook, specifically the guys that you gave Facebook, the list that you gave him. That's pretty powerful because if you go to an event and then you gather emails and now you have 5,000 emails from just asking for people that are interested in your product but not necessarily bought, you can go on Facebook and target those guys with ads. So for example, Pinterest doesn't have that. So it's like on Pinterest, you're kind of throwing your money away in a way because it's hard to target the right people. But at the same time, it, it offers a bunch of opportunity for guys that are a little more hacky and can find their way into you know knowing so much about Pinterest ads as it is right now that they can have an advantage over the rest of the market that's not really investing much time or money into like Pinterest, for example. So definitely know all the paid channels. And what else? And I, like, it's important always to be like humble and know that there's always more to learn. Whoever calls himself a master is he's dead. Like you need to know specifically with growth is like it's changing so fast. Like Google just launched a new feature two months ago and it was a game changer for every marketer out there. And these type of things, you need to be on top of everything. You need to be learning. And even in the smallest medium article from the random guy, there's always a hint. There's always something that you can use to build your skill set and learn more at the end. Yeah, and, and you've definitely shared a lot of gems before going into the lightning round that Timor will tell you about when Nick introduces to you, you know, clearly, you know, your family is important to you, your culture is important to you, and you're clearly a master networker as well. 
He talked about how you leverage your Chilean culture as well since you've been out here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the Chilean network here is funny. We're these guys who are the small team, always. I think we're one of the smallest populations here. And in, in a way, it's been great because coming from Chile, we have this natural thing of supporting each other and helping the, all the Chileans. And I think what's, what's nice is that the Chileans are here are the guys that decided to be different. Chile is a country that it's very family-oriented and it's, very, it's an easy country. You can have a basic job that pays everything you want to do. You can travel a lot. And it's, it's easy, but there's not much happening. It's like this kind of cool, chill place where everything is working. If you decide to move to San Francisco, it's different because suddenly you're in a you know, $2,000 rent in which every month it's like, dude, you need to figure out what you're going to do because it's costing you two k where rent in Chile could be like 500 bucks or something like that. So um, I've met a bunch of Chileans here. There are there have been a couple of success stories with also kind of helps this new generation of people coming to the Bay Area. And they're very friendly and open. Like you can just send them an email and say, hey, I'm Max. And they're happy to share their network with you and share their experience and, and talk about it. But I think Chile was when, when we play soccer, so football for us, <laughs> that's when we really get together. And that doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter whatever, like your background. We all get together, the whole country gets united. And we are all watching that TV and supporting our team. When we won the Copa America a couple of weeks ago, we were so happy. The party just went on for days and days and days. And it's, it's just amazing being able to share that with other Chileans here in San Francisco. That's awesome. So the next part of our podcast, it's the lightning round. And that's when uh, Arthur Rubin and I will ask you a series of questions and Try to provide us with short answers, but our listeners really want to know about the strategies, the tactics, the resources that you've used to get where you are today. So with that said, Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So this question takes you back to the basics. So imagine you get dropped in a new city, could be San Francisco. You only have $100 and you're starting from scratch all over again. What would you do and how would you spend that $100? (laughs) It's an awesome question. I would buy a phone with internet connection and that would be it. Like... I would use that as my main platform because I think that with the phone, with an internet connection, you can ask for food. They'll give you food. You can sleep on the streets with all these cool guys here and the rest you can figure it out. But uh, having an internet connection will open up all the way from like events, meetups. You can go to companies to see what they're doing and you can find your way into the city. Or- awesome. Great answer. Great answer. So take us through some of your most frustrating experiences, let's say when you were going through Blink and you didn't have that skill to be able to design or to engineer what you wanted to engineer, you're running through a bunch of roadblocks. Was there any music or a movie or something that you watched that helped you get through that? I think when you're an entrepreneur, it's so hard that if you base everything in stuff from the world, if that thing breaks, then you're going to break. So like, I base everything, I think God's been a great companion for me. And like, I just have everything on him. So for me, like what happens is just a result of like following his path. And and so that'll never break. Even if you're in the shittiest moments in your life, if you put and you have your faith on him, like you'll totally fine. There's always a light at the end of the, of the tunnel. Amen. Awesome. So um, the next question, it's about, 
one piece of advice. But since you mentioned that your brother also did a tradecraft and potentially he could move out to a SAF once he's done with college, what is the one piece of advice that you would want our listeners and maybe you would give your brother on how to break into a startup via the growth role? Sure. So is this for people that are here in the city or are from outside? Um, Anywhere. Let's just say people who just want to do growth. Maybe they're planning on coming out to SF. Maybe they want to go to New York. Maybe they want to go break in in their own city. But what is that one piece of advice? So I think it's very important to be persistent and to be learning all the time. Every subway you take, pull up your phone and read articles about growth. Every opportunity you have to test things out, go. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen by building an app, testing it out, and you know, having 20 users that use it? That's fine. You learn a lot. And like, if I think about Chile, it was like every time I'd, I used public transportation, which was every day to go to my university and back, that was like an hour trip every day. And I said, okay, so if I invest two hours a day in, in growth, right, in a year, that's almost like 500 hours. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. And then add up the weekends that I'm investing in growth as well. Now I have like a thousand hours worth of growth of learning, of reading articles, of reading different opinions from people, watching videos. Listening to podcasts. Listening to podcasts. Every time I go to the gym, for example, spend an hour and a half, you know, listening to a good podcast. It's just awesome. You're there, like you're rowing or, or running or doing, you know, whatever. And you're hearing this amazing speaker that you can always have. There are always gems in those conversations. Yeah. And from your story alone, it sounds like it wasn't a coincidence that you ended up at Samsara and you're doing growth for them. You've been passionate about growth for like three, four years. You've gone to all these conferences, then you did Tradecraft. So when you're passionate about this single topic and you want to be the best, like companies will hire you because they know how good you are and how much value you can bring. And not just the best from a subject perspective too, like you know the people that are the best. Yeah. So, and not just the people, you know the faces. So when you walk in the room, you recognize them and you can introduce yourself. So respect. Yeah. Yeah. So going through this process, what is one thing that you fundamentally believed in that you changed your mind on after you got into startups? I thought before that one single person could not have an impact in society. Like it was because like, it's very hard when you're by yourself and you don't have any money and like big interest groups are running everything to really come out with a voice and, you know, change things that you're, you don't agree with. When I got into tech, I realized that with growth, you can grow anything. You can grow. So for me, that was the biggest thing. That was like a guy from a computer can change the world, basically, wherever he is. He can make political statements. He can, you know, change everything. Start Twitter campaigns. Start a revolution, right? Yeah. And I do believe it. I think that now with technology, it democratizes information. I think there's going to be a huge change in like education, especially with like poor people around the world. And they're going to have access to the Stanford professor. Mm-hmm. Through the smartphone that they bought with the $100. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one day if I can help out doing that kind of stuff, I'll be very happy of helping guys that didn't have the same opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And last question. So can you share like one online resource or a few online resources for people that are interested in following the, the growth path. I'm a big fan of growthhackers.com. It's become a place where, like a marketplace for blog articles. And 
if you're if you don't have much time, just read the top articles every day. The one that gets the most upvotes. Subscribe to the newsletters as well. I think Brian Balfour has also like amazing stuff with like Coelevade. And when you read an article and you think that the guy that wrote it, you know, said something smart, go to his Twitter, start following him on Twitter, start following him on Medium, see what other articles he's posted. And then one day you're going to meet him at a meetup and you're going to know way more about him. And like, awesome. Well, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Because you've had a lot of jams and I'm sure people will have questions. So are you on any social media? Happy to help with anything I can. I think LinkedIn would be the easiest one. I have my Twitter and my email there. I usually respond to emails as fast as I can. So email is my great channel. You can look it up in my, my LinkedIn. If you look for Max uh, Rancret, or um, you can send me an email directly to the Tradecraft email. So it's mrencret, but I'm going to spell it so that people get it. It's M-R-E-N-C-O-R-E-T at tradecrafted.com. And we'll definitely include it in the show notes as well for our listeners. Sweet. Well, it was a great podcast and thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. Thank you, Max. Thank you guys for the invitation. It was awesome. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.